our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Hi, I'm Hera. And I'm Aisha. And we are the Mocha Single Mothers by Choice, or SMCs. Like you, as SMCs, we decided to become mothers knowing we'd be the sole care provider and parent of our children, at least at the outset. And the Mocha is for Black. We discuss being SMCs from an intentionally Black lens. You'll connect with all the interesting and fun things about this non-traditional path. Like how you decide which sperm to use, the cold, hard truth of fertility, your reality of dating as a single mother who doesn't have a co-parent to rely on for occasional childcare, and what it's actually like to parent as an SMC. This is the Mocha Single Mothers by Choice podcast. Welcome to our Ask Me Anything episode. So Aisha and I have been collecting questions over the last couple of months, just general questions that tend to pop up in both our space and also the larger SMC space. And so we're going to go through these topically and yeah, just have a girlfriend's chat about some of the stuff that that really ends up coming up when people are trying to approach this path. So Aisha, the first topic we talked about discussing was navigating donor conception as a family. So one of the things that comes up a lot is like how to deal with the new DNA technology, like 23andMe, Ancestry DNA. Should I add my child's DNA and find the, to find the donor? So I think that's a weird question because I feel like whether or not you do DNA, like should not be to find the donor. But what are your thoughts about this, Aisha? You know, I have so many thoughts. I I'm one of those people who I don't open up Pandora's box, right? So I signed an agreement that I would wait until my child was 18. That's that's one part of my thought process. The other part of my thought process is that I don't want my my children's DNA, their identifying information, their private information out there. And so I consider their DNA to be private information. And so I think that if it is something that they put out there, that it is something that they put out there when they reach an age of understanding what the implications could be. And so at three and eight, they're not there yet. So I personally am not going to do that. Putting my own DNA out there would be a decision I feel equipped to make. Putting theirs out there, I'm not at this point. So I definitely think this is a personal family decision and I would just recommend moms make sure that if you do this, there's a way that you can make it anonymous. So basically you can see your child's ethnicity and, you know, breakdown and all that stuff, but you can make them anonymous to external folks. I recommend doing this because you don't know who in the donor's family has done it and you don't want to accidentally blow up his spot by having your kid's DNA be discoverable by grandma, for example. So I would just recommend that if you choose this path, I would just make sure it's anonymous. And then when the child's 18, they can decide whether or not they want to make it discoverable. And that could be a way where they connect with donor siblings that you may not have previously connected with or potentially the donor themselves. All right. 
Next question. What's your approach to telling your child their conception story? So I know we always talk about tell them early and tell them often. And I will say that for me, I use that time before they were talking and understanding me to sort of practice. Mm -hmm. And part of it wasn't even just telling them, but how do you deal with the public? Mm -hmm. Like, for example, you know, people asking you why you're pregnant and you're not married. And just, I also think a lot about, you don't have to, you don't have to tell everybody everything either. You can decide to tell them what you're comfortable with. And really just thinking about like, do I want to get into this with the person standing in front of me? Because for me personally, the only people who in my life who have a right to know are my kids. I owe all the explanations. Whereas, you know, somebody from work or someone in the grocery store, I'm going to tell them whatever I need to tell them just to end the conversation. Or if I care about the person standing in front of me, I might be more, I might elaborate more. I'm just, I, I try to be as honest as possible with my kids because I don't ever want to get to the point where they have any resentment about their conception because I withheld information. How about you, Aisha? Right. And, you know, I also ascribe to tell them early, tell them often. Since I have egg donor and sperm donor as part of my conception story, the way that I've approached it is that there are three things that are required to make a baby. There, well, four things. There's the uterus, there's the egg, there's the sperm, and then there's love, right? And so that keeps the story inclusive, that keeps the story something that won't be changing anytime in the future um, for us. And so, and I've started similar to you before they were able to talk as a means of getting my head in the game and getting me comfortable with the story so that it rolls off, rolls off my tongue. We do have the donor profiles. And so at when they reach an age where they want to see that and they're able to, to process that information, I have it at the ready. And as of now, I've started telling my three-year-old because we have a nighttime routine where we just, we snuggle and then we, we talk about our days. And then, you know, so I'm interweaving our story into that time so that it is private, it is personal, it's dark, so she's not looking directly at me. And it's something that she just kind of grows up with. Um, so that's my approach. All right. So what about what do you call the donor? I called the donor, the donor. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I actually never, I don't know, I never struggled with this because to me, that's what it's called. Like, I mean, it was interesting. I think I've told this story before, but as I, I, I almost got stuck at the border going into Canada to visit a friend because the border agent asked me if I had gotten permission for my child's father to travel. And I looked at him dead in the face and I was like, you mean the donor? Uh -huh. And he was like, well, you might think he's a donor, but like, does he think he's a donor? And I'm like, ah, I'm pretty sure he thinks he's a donor. Bile. <laughs> I've never actually met the dude. Like it was a tissue donation. But yeah, I think anything else is confusing mm -hmm. because yeah, technically this is a biological father, but I think even using that terminology on a regular basis can be confusing because a father to me is similar to a daddy and that's a parent and that's not what happened here. Right. And similar to you, I think the waters get muddied quite a bit because in a dating situation, I told a man that I used a donor and he was like, well, is it just uh, the, the dad and y'all broke up badly and you're calling him a donor? No, 
So I've started now using more precise language, a donor from a sperm bank. Mm. So that they 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 clearly understand, you know, the context of No, but this kills me. I feel like we've had this conversation before too. I really get irritated when people call deadbeat dads donors because mm-hmm. a donor to me is somebody who made a very a very kind donation and allowed me to have my family. And so that's somebody that in my household we respect and cherish as like for the generosity of this person. Right. Whereas when people, when people associate a negative connotation with donor, it just bothers me because I'm like, that's not a donor. That's a deadbeat dad. And right. there's a difference. Right. I agree. <laughs> okay. So this one comes up <clears throat> a lot. And I, I love the fact that we have been able to grow our, with our children and parenting in this community, because we are dead smack in the middle of a lot of these questions. Um, so when did you start or when should you start seeking out donor siblings? So I think this is, to me, this is very similar to the DNA question in that I think it really depends on how the family feels and the family's comfort level. I would recommend people not seek out donor siblings if the concept makes them super uncomfortable at that point in time. You could evolve and change your mind. For me, I was almost immediate with it. Like I, I sought out people who are pregnant at the same time. And I feel very fortunate for having done so because some of these moms, we were pregnant at the same time and Mm -hmm. we were going through it together. And I think we formed a bond as a result because we are, we were carrying relatives. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I've actually, I formed some really, some really great relationships with the families, which I feel really was important to me because I didn't know whether or not the donor would ever be interested in contacting the kids. You know, at 18, they can choose to contact him, but if he doesn't want to have a relationship, that's completely his prerogative. And so I wanted them to have the opportunity to connect with essentially family on that other side. Uh, And I've been very fortunate that we've had several sibling families that are also interested and excited about the relationships. So it's been a really positive experience for us. How about you? In in the SMC spaces, we see a range of emotions around this topic and people will evolve. Um, you get it from people that are just like, no, I didn't come to this path to choose extra family members all the way to I'm all the way out there and open. Let's find the people. Mm-hmm. I think I have evolved on, on this topic. And I think you do it in the best interest of the kid, regardless of how fearful you are. I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about the unknown. And that is the unknown of the kids as well, because people are raised in different environments. I'm also a bit leery because there are non-Black people, non-people of color also using donors. And I don't want to be that token in your life of access to, to Blackness or what have you. Um, but that's a totally different topic. So for me... I did not seek out donor for my first child. I allowed myself to process what it could possibly mean. And so I started when my eldest was about 18 months. And then that's when I was just like, okay, I feel ready. Things have settled and let's go ahead and now do this. So I signed up with the sperm bank sibling registry. And then I found a wonderful donor sibling mom and it has just evolved. Now I will say that I am also the type of person that 
just because the floodgates have opened doesn't mean that I need to have a relationship with everybody. Now I have a relationship with two families and I'm good right now. And so the kids have grown up together. They are aware of each other. We've done family vacations together. And that has been a real deep joy for me, but I'm going at my pace. So I think as long as you do it, do something so that the kids, you you soften the entry for your kids so that they do know that this world exists, that these um, donor siblings exist, and that you've made connections with a few families. The rest, the kids will take up the mantle and they will own their relationships. But I needed to do my part to begin the conversation, to open the gates, to let them know that my child exists and is part of this. I've noticed that many many donor conceived people are finding siblings and I wanted my kids to not be finding them as adults and then feeling like they missed out on something because if some of the other ones had grown up and known about each other and then they get into this situation, you know, when they're all going on vacation and they're like, wow, I wish I had had these experiences. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make sure to give them that opportunity. it's a very special relationship. You know, we're entering into a different place in our society and it is a privilege to, to be part of another child's ecosystem, another child's life. Like I adore the little boy, like he's scrappy, like two, two, two donor sibling boys. My, my daughter is so far the only daughter and the oldest. And so it is quite a joy to to watch them interact, but to also be a trusted adult in the lives of the little boys as well. So, so yeah, so there is that. I love watching the kids together. We just recently had a visit with some of them and it was like a gaggle of like five girls and two of them were mine. Mm-hmm. And it was just, at first they were kind of all like, who is this person, you know? And cause it was, it was the first time that a couple of them were meeting. And it was great to just see how quickly they jumped in and just became this like glob of kids hugging each other. And I just was so sweet. How do they refer to each other? Because I refer to when I, when, when we got together most recently, I told my daughter, we're going to see your donor sibling. She's like, yeah, yeah. But I like to call them my donor friend. And it's just like, okay. So interestingly, like my daughter my oldest has had more experience. My youngest is a little bit too young. I mean, she just sees them and she's like new friends. And I think my oldest is, is more conscious of what's going on. She calls them sisters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it, it depends because some of them, she has had more of a relationship with than others, mm-hmm. but for her, the one that we were the closest to and used to live near, that was just her sister. She didn't call it her half sister. She mm-hmm. didn't call friends. She just said, okay, that's, you know, can we, can we see my sister? Mm-hmm. And so I just, yeah, I think I, I pretty much let her lead. I explained who the person was, which mm-hmm. was important, but mm-hmm. then, you know, I'm not gonna, I think it's really important to kind of allow them to shape what you call them. So speaking of how do you handle situations or how do you handle the concept of children being angry about not having a social father? So this is a this is a good question. There have been only really two times this has this has come up, and it wasn't in the context of anger. Um, right around preschool, the kids start noticing mommies and daddies coming to school to pick up. So my my three year old is you know mommies and daddies, and then we do the the finger family, and um, my daughter knows that you know her finger family is a mom and a sister, and so that's her concept right now. So there's no 
real emotion there, no feeling of disappointment. My older daughter, she'll bring it up sporadically, like, oh, so-and-so had their mom and their dad. So right now, there's no anger, but I do realize that emotions evolve as people become more concrete on what's going on in the world. And so I'm just flexible to be to be open to to hear her feelings on the topic because she's going to go through puberty and have a range of emotions. And so I'm just remaining flexible, but trying right now to create an environment and space for her to feel comfortable expressing um, Mm -hmm. strong emotions and to be able to have tools to kind of talk them through. So that's what I'm doing for right now. But in terms of I think people have a right to feel however they're going to feel. And yeah. then we process those emotions because reality is not going to change. So, yeah. Yeah. So interestingly, my kids have handled this in two different ways. And I don't know if it's because of personality or because of our living situations now versus when my oldest was younger. So for the first about, uh, I guess for the first five years, it was really just me and my oldest before my youngest was born. And so when my youngest was born, my parents uh, were living with us, which was intentional because I knew my limitations about what I could do without more of a community support. And also when my youngest was born, that was right around the time when my brother-in-law pretty much came into the picture. I mean, no, I should say he's been in the picture for a lot longer, but that was when things got really serious and he sort of became adopted into the family. And so my youngest has never really experienced not having very present positive male role models, either in the home or very closely in our periphery. And so I have noticed that with my oldest, she did go through a period of time where she was sad or, you know, upset that she didn't have a father. And I tried to be very careful with how I responded to that because I didn't want her to feel like I was dismissing how she felt about it. Mm -hmm. But I also noticed that recently the topic came up again and she feels very differently, or at least she talks about it very differently now. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is that in, in, in her experience right now, even though she doesn't have a social father, she's not missing that male attention the way that she was missing it back then. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that has changed. And also I think what has become an interesting dynamic, at least for us now in school, Families are starting to change. So, you know, in preschool, it's more rare that you would have a divorce situation or two parents that aren't together because Mm -hmm. at that age, they're still trying to work it out. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas now that she's in fourth grade, families are starting to get divorced. Kids are having to go back and forth between two houses. So she's starting to see how different families evolve. Mm -hmm. And now she's also starting to see that the grass might not be greener on the other side. Mm-hmm. It's different. And, you know, we talk about like, you know, some kids have to go between two houses and, and whatnot. And so I think even though she can appreciate what it must be like to have two parents, she also can also appreciate what it, the, the, the downside for kids that have broke for have families that have broken up. 
and how she doesn't have to deal with that. Let's switch to the parenting topic. So we get we get this a lot. We get a lot of new parents um, in our group. And, you know, we we watch and we, we just want to virtually hug them because it's just like, oh, my. OK, so let's talk about start from the very beginning. I'm newly pregnant and not yet showing at work. What do I tell people if or when they ask about the father? Yeah, this one is interesting because I remember going through kind of an awkward stage where I was comfortable with my choices, but I also didn't like the fact that people are nosy AF and they will ask you all kinds of really intrusive questions. And if they see that you don't have a ring on your finger, they will also be like, what happened here? Which is, you know, not okay. I think for me, again, it goes back to how much do I care about the person standing in front of me? How much do I feel like I owe them an explanation into my conception, which is awkward because if you're in a marriage, people don't ask because they make the assumption that this is your husband's baby. I think my advice for people is don't feel like you have to say anything. I don't think that you need to explain to your coworkers or people outside of your inner circle how you got pregnant. That is not their business. Now, if they ask, which might happen, I think you can also turn the awkwardness back on them and be like, why why would you ask me that question? Right. It's just like, so <laughs> it's like, it's none of your business. Um, yeah, it's just awkward. And I think they will pull their foot out of their mouth or try to, when you turn it back on them and you just say, well, that's an interesting question. Why did you feel like you should ask me about how I got pregnant? And then it gets real awkward. Right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. I, I, I did not get that question. And I don't know if it's because majority of my team was remote. I was also transitioning in between offices. So I did not get that question. I was more so the one that's just like, you know, I'm, I'm expecting, you know, my maternity leave will start X, Y, Z, and just keep it moving. And then, you know, everything else I talk about my kids, you know, throughout work, um, I am open with being a single um, parent. So mm -hmm. I never really had that. Um, people were genuinely happy um, for, for me. So I didn't get any awkward questions. I think I may have said once or twice that I'm a single mother by choice and just leave it out there for people to Google. But I, I, I also say I'm a solo mom and it kind of cuts off some of that because they don't, you know, you, even getting into the SMC thing with somebody who is just not it's not part of their, mm -hmm. it's not even to me, it's not about, I mean, obviously I'm out here with my SMC status, right. But a lot of people just don't understand and they come, they'll come at you with their ignorance. So that's why I say like, assess how much you care about the person in front of you. And mm -hmm. if you care about the person in front of you, then yeah, do the work, right. And tell mm -hmm. them all the things and be like, Hey, this is what I'm doing. You have any questions? Let me know. But what I caution women about is that Imagine how many microaggressions we as Black women to deal with just moving through the world as Black women and then having to having to explain what an SMC is, why I chose this path to some well-meaning white coworker is just not something that I typically. Yeah, no, you don't you don't you don't do it in that way. When mm -hmm. I say I'm open, like I don't really care about people's opinions. I don't care about all of that stuff. I'm here, I'm pregnant. Period. End of story. I I didn't get that because I think there's there's a way you answer that question that just shuts it down. Like if you lead with like I'm I'm expecting my maternity leave my maternity leave starts XYZ, 
it doesn't leave room for people to ask those awkward questions because how do you go back and say, wait, 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 who's the father? Well, it makes yeah, yeah. it awkward for them. Right. You know so what, though, I, we've had this conversation before, Aisha. I feel like people will ask me all kinds of ratchetry that they <laughs> won't ask you. And I don't know what it is because well, I, have, I have RBF. So I'm like, why are they still comfortable I think, asking me all kinds of craziness? I think it's implicit in how you respond. You shut it. You shut it down. Like you don't leave too many gaps in the yeah. conversation. Like, oh, yes, I'm, I'm so excited to let you all know that I'm expecting my maternity leave will start, blah, blah, blah. And and yeah, I'm just excited. And then we move on. So it doesn't leave a whole lot of space for them to ask awkward questions because the moment to ask awkward questions would be, I'm expecting, don't pause. Yeah, yeah, just keep, keep going. You're like, yeah. okay, so that meeting that we were talking about. Yeah, and then when they throw meetings on your calendar, they're like, you know, does this date work for everybody? It's just like, yeah, no, I have the kids, you know, I'm, I'm a single parent, so that's not gonna work for me. So it is all in the cadence of the conversation. You state the fact, that's not going to work for me, find other options. And so I think, you know, there, there can't be any trepidation. There can't be any hesitancy because then people look at that as an opportunity to jump in with their nuisance questions. Okay. So before we wrap, one of the questions we have been getting a lot, and I think this has become increasingly asked post pandemic life. It's, can I work from home with my newborn? And I think that because working from home and remote jobs have become so pervasive, there is an assumption that working from home means you can be at home and be as yourself with your family while you're working. And so my answer to this is probably not. Depends on whether or not you're going to be working or going to be parenting. Because I don't think you can effectively do both at the same time, even at the newborn stage. How about you, Aisha? You can't do both. And I think as when I was a manager, when I was a manager, we had this conversation at work. It's that when you are working, your company expects you to have 100% focused attention on your work and you cannot split that attention. So that's the assumption with working from home. The assumption is that you're focused on your job. You children, little people don't necessarily respect boundaries. And so also depending on the nature of your job, you may or may not be able to flex your hours and things like that. But I know for the jobs that I work, I have deadlines, I have specific meeting times, and trying to weed childcare in between that. I did it in the pandemic, and it nearly killed me. Most companies will expect you to have childcare. If you are working a standard nine to five day, they will expect you to have childcare. So if there ch there's children noise in the meetings, it reflects poorly and it could be a performance issue. So I would be really, really hesitant to do that. So that would be my response. So I think during the height of the pandemic, when the daycares and schools were closed, that was right. a different situation because then yeah. everybody knew that there was really nothing we could do and it was just best effort, right? right? So for me, even as a manager, I understood. I was like, look, if your kid runs into the room, like no shade, I get it. Mine's running into the room. Just my, if my three-year-old is behind me naked, just let me know. <laughs> like I will blur out my screen so that it doesn't. So, but I, but I think that one thing that I will say is remote work can give you a level of flexibility 
that I appreciate as a parent. Now, flexibility is super important, but that certainly doesn't mean that you can replace it with childcare. So I do recommend if a woman is looking for a job that could potentially be more conducive to an SMC lifestyle and remote is an option, that's awesome. Because you can, if you can save on a commute, for example, and have daycare close to your home or even have a nanny situation where you can work in another part of the house, that can be a really great situation because you can have a little bit more, I won't say work-life balance because I actually don't think that that's attainable, Mm -hmm. but I think work-life boundaries is important and making sure that you can be in the moment for what it is you're trying to do, be it I'm in the moment for work right now because I know that I'm the only person financially responsible for this child. Mm -hmm. And then when when you're in your parenting, be being fully present for your kid and not worrying about what's happening at work. I agree. We have many more questions that came in and stick with us for next week. Well, Pod, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. If you like what you heard, share us with your girlfriends. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So tell us what you thought of this episode on social media. On Facebook, we are at Mocha SMC Podcast. And on Twitter and Instagram, we are at Mocha SMC. You can find additional information on the topics from the podcast at our website at mochasmc.com. Till next time, pod. Bye now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.